Welcome back to the Sage Post 47 podcast. This is your host, Sierra Ty Brownlee, and today I am joined by Carla Pamela Lopez, Pomona College class of 2001, and an individual currently working in the international development and humanitarian health innovation industry. Thank you for being on the podcast, Carla. Oh, it's my absolute pleasure. All right, let's jump right in and... I would love if you could tell me a little bit about your time at Pomona and maybe what you studied and some of the things that you were involved with. Oh, yeah, sure. Um, I uh, came to Pomona as a biology major, um, and um, I was I had lived in the U.S. before, but um, still kind of uh, new to the United States and particularly the West Coast um, and Pomona was a, a magical campus of sunshine and happiness, and uh, it felt like a real privilege to be there. Um, and one of the first things I noticed when I arrived at Pomona is all of a sudden, uh, everyone around me who was a new student was freaking out because they were no longer the smartest person in their class, and they were having all these identity crises. Um, and it was, I, I think for me, uh, a real... Uh, release of pressure to recognize that um, I could have a different kind of identity. Um, and it was really nice to be surrounded by people who had such different backgrounds um, than I did and feel really challenged by that in a, in a really good way. Um, so that included everything from, you know, having conversations about what it's like to grow up in the Persian community in LA to uh, going rock climbing with the geology department on weekends. Um, and it felt like a time of a lot of possibility and exploration. Um, and yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. Like I said, I joined as a biology major, um, but ended up taking a lot of classes in things I was interested in, which was mm-hmm. a lot of English literature, uh, sociology, that kind of thing, um, and felt privileged to <laughs> be able to do that, to attend a liberal arts education where that was um, encouraged and therefore met a lot of people who were not biology majors um, and yeah. who were trained to see to, to think in different ways and saw the world in different ways and had different interests. And that was by far the best thing about Pomona for me uh, were the people I met and the friends that I have to this day. Well, I'm glad that you really enjoyed your experience. Um and you said that you came in as a biology major. So did you already know that biology um, was the subject you wanted to study? And how did you make that decision so early on? Yeah, I did know. I did come in with a lot of confidence around that major. Um, I uh, thought for a long time that I wanted to become a paleontologist. Um, I'm sure we all did at some point in our lives. <laughs> And um, was really lucky enough to spend a summer actually digging up dinosaurs and recognizing that. Wow. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and actually, like, did dig up dinosaur bones um, and recognize that while I love the lifestyle of being outside and like camping every night, and, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's really physically laborious to do summer expeditions, um, I kind of felt like I was more interested in living things than long dead things. I mean, I still love dinosaurs. But, <laughs> um, so, um, yeah, that's, and my father is uh, a biochemist. Um, his specialty is in chocolate, but 
um, my parents are both from East Africa and my dad mm-hmm. has, you know, we all get the same stories from our parents time and again. And some of my favorites of my dad's are stories of when he would spend the summer in, in Gorongor Crater in Tanzania um, studying wildebeest migration. And I think that sparked this like romantic notion of what biology could be, the, the yeah. vessel for being able to tell amazing stories and having all these mm-hmm. great experiences outside. Very cool. Um, and then kind of moving a little bit ahead, as you were nearing graduation, did you know what you wanted to pursue career-wise? And how did you go about maybe choosing the path? So, no-ish. No-ish. So okay. I, <laughs> I had this vague, you know, I was surrounded by friends, some of whom were, knew they wanted to be doctors from the age of like eight and that's yeah. what they spent their entire <laughs> lives working towards and I never had that kind of clarity of vision of what I wanted to do mm-hmm. um, I, there are lots of things that I enjoyed and I think one of the things about Pomona was being exposed to so many different activities and recognizing you know the moments where I felt happiest were moments where I was surrounded by interesting people who challenged me and supported me and like allowed me to laugh a lot and you know, I think um, I I did a lot of thinking about the kind of environment that I wanted to spend my career in, and I knew it wasn't under fluorescent lighting in a lab. Mm-hmm. Um, I had this deep-seated fear that I was going to, if I became a biologist right off the bat, if I went to grad school right after Pomona, yeah, I would end up like writing NHS grants um, uh, for some obscure thing that me in and three other people in the world cared about. <laughs> <laughs> so I vaguely thought that maybe I wanted to study oceanography um, mm-hmm. because I like being on the water. I grew up by the sea. Yeah. Um, but I was really exhausted by the time I left Pomona. Like I was so tired of school that the thought of going to grad school was so unappealing to me. Yeah. And also, as I mentioned, my dad uh, is a chocolate specialist and mm-hmm. He got there kind of by accident. He studied many things um, when he was young and sort of ended up in one lab or with one kind of mentor or other and ended up studying uh, chocolate, which was great for me growing up. Yeah. <laughs> Made me a lot of friends. We had an entire fridge dedicated just to chocolate when I was growing <laughs> up in Brazil. Um, but I think that, you know, I- I'm not sure that that kind of specificity of study is something he would have necessarily chosen. So yeah. I decided to not go to grad school right after Pomona to take a break mm. from school because <laughs> I'd been at it for a while at that point. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and to take a job doing something that was not oceanography, that was not a passion and just give my t- myself some time to think. And I ended up taking a job at a small firm outside of Washington, D.C. It's a very weird company. It was... Um, a company of all like former military, very conservative white guys. And I am neither former military, nor conservative, nor white, nor a man. Um, I'm pretty sure they had no idea what to do with me. Um, And it was not a job I cared about, um, Uh but it was a job that taught me a lot about what it was like to be an employee, to be held accountable, to work uh, at a certain quality level in the workplace, which is different from school. And also, it was weird hours. They worked from 6 a.m. to 3 p.m., which was brutal, but it meant that 
I had a lot of time in the afternoons and the evenings. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it was, it, the work was working on environmental assessments of, of Superfund sites that were military or missile assembly sites in World War II. Or, Interesting. Yeah, or wandering around the Smithsonian Museums in D.C. Uh, before it opened with the maintenance crew documenting you know, the history of the museums and the structure, the structural changes that needed to be worked on so that Congress knew how much money to allocate to it. I mean, really random things <laughs> that I didn't really care about, but I met some really interesting people. I mean, I, there was this crew of guys on the it, who did maintenance at the Smithsonian who specialized only in, in lifts, in elevators. Yeah. And I, and like, again, they didn't know what to do with me following them around all day. And they thought it was great because there was someone they could tell all their stories to because <laughs> yeah. their colleagues were so tired of hearing the stories. <laughs> and having all this time, finishing work at 3 p.m. meant that I had time to volunteer in the evenings and I had time to socialize. And the socializing is really important because, you know, you don't stop being challenged after Pomona. You don't stop trying to figure out who you are as a person and what makes you happy after Pomona. That's an ongoing process that seems yeah. obvious. But um, and so I I did a bunch of volunteer work trying to figure out what I liked and uh, volunteered in spaces that were really new to me and made friends with people who who just pushed me to be outside of my comfort zone all the time. Um, I also got to know Belgian beers and fall in love with beers. And um, <laughs> this has been an ongoing theme in my life. Um, I brew beer. I have aspirations to start an all-female brewery somewhere in East or Southern Africa one day. Okay. Call me if you have ideas. <laughs> um, and one of the places where I volunteered was the Whitman Walker Clinic in Washington, D.C., uh, which at the time was one of the was the largest HIV treatment clinics in the United States, um, and HIV prevention was always had had been a an, an area of interest to me for a long time. Um, and I volunteered in the in the evening with this group of of bears of of gay men who did outreach uh, to the gay population in D.C. Mm -hmm. and they were all men in their mid to late 30s uh, and 40s who had seen, you know, the devastation of HIV in the, in the 80s and really cared deeply about these issues. But they were trying to do outreach to young guys who were college age guys who were in, you know, bathhouses and gay clubs in the city. And it was them and me. Yeah. <laughs> and so, again, this was like a, a cultural shift for me to try to understand their stories and their history and their passion. Um, but I also recognize that I had a role to play as someone who um, could walk into a gay bar and approach a bunch of young guys and not ever feel threatening to them, right? I wasn't trying to hit on them or like, you know, make them uncomfortable. They saw me as a non-entity. And so mm -hmm. I could go there with my messenger bag of lube and condoms and uh, do outreach work that these really passionate other volunteers um, had a harder time with because, you know, when they entered a gay bar and approached younger guys, um, they, they had to grapple with a lot more um, social, uh, they had yeah. to navigate a lot more in those social interactions than I did. 
Um, and so I had, I felt like my role to play was to be sort of like a conduit between the passion and the mission and the knowledge and the history of these volunteers and, you know, the perceptions of a younger group of, of guys who, who felt very differently about HIV risk to them in their lives. Mm-hmm. So I, I spent several years doing um, this job, which was weird yeah. and not part of my plan, nothing <laughs> to do with oceanography, um, but had a really vibrant non-work life. Um, yeah. Even at work, like I learned how to do things like, you know, write basic reports, collate documents, really boring stuff that everyone <laughs> needs to learn how to do um, before deciding to go to graduate school. Okay. And what made you decide um, to specifically pursue a job after graduation that you knew did not align with your interests? Because I felt like if I took a job after Pomona that was aligned with my interests, then that's what I would be doing for the long haul. And I've talked to many Pomona students over the past couple of years about careers and <laughs> I feel a little bit like a broken record when I say to each and every one of them that when you graduate from Pomona, especially if you're financially able to, um, there is no better time in your life to do risky things, to take on things well outside of your comfort level and well outside of your intended career path and to make colossal, massive mistakes. There's Your runway has never been longer to course correct than it is when you graduate from Pomona. And when you're an old, tired, grumpy person and you are repeating your stories time and again to mm-hmm. small children at parties, um, you want to have some good stories to tell about your crazy youth. And now is the time to go make those stories. So, you know, you have... The, I've never talked to a single friend at Pomona who whoever regretted taking those risks after graduation, who have a single regret about doing a crazy thing that was not part of the career plan, that was not part of this track that you want to get on. And, and that's, I know that's really hard for some of us who got to Pomona because they were very focused on academics and very focused on getting into a school like Pomona. Um, and, you know, schools like Pomona uh, reward that kind of drive and ambition Um, but I think we all need time to sort of recognize that we're all growing so much so fast during that time in our lives that it, we owe it to ourselves, I think, to take a pause and just be like, Hey, are the things that were important to me when I was applying to get into college, the same things that are important to me now? What, what are the moments that I can think back on that made me so incredibly happy? And what, what were elements of those moments that I love the best? And how do I make sure that I cultivate the opportunities for those moments to come up time and again in my career, in my social life, in my family life, um, and not be overly fixated on having this amazing career that I'm going to be wildly successful in. Yeah, wise words, and I like it. It'll be nice, or it wouldn't be nice to have some fun stories to tell in the future. You can do it. It's within your power to make it happen. <laughs> okay. Um, and so did you know, even after, like right after graduation, even though you knew you didn't want to um, get a graduate degree right after, you knew at some point you did want to? 
Yeah, I think I did um, for a couple of reasons. One, um, it's not so easy to get. Uh, so I, I'm not a U.S. citizen, um, and a lot of the jobs that I was looking for in biology were conservation jobs um, uh, or jobs at you know oceanographic institutes that receive government money. And some of the caveats that come with those kinds of jobs is that it requires U.S. citizenship or a green card, which I didn't have. So, um, you know, I think if I had had if I had been eligible for them, um, the natural course of action would have been, you know, start at an entry level position in a job like that and work your way up. Um, but because I had that constraint, uh, it really pushed me to, to figure out how to make myself uh, a stronger candidate for the kinds of jobs I wanted. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure. I have, actually haven't thought about this, Sierra, but I'm not sure if looking back on it now that was true, but that was okay. the best conclusion. That was the best decision I, I was able to make at the time. Okay. Also, my knowledge of the job market was next to zero. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. And then um, during your master's or afterwards, how did that influence then what you wanted to do? Yeah, so I mentioned that I did this volunteer work at the Whitman Walker Clinic and HIV prevention was an interest. Um, and that became more and more clear uh, during this interim period between Pomona and grad school um, that I, I ran across some studies and papers um, that were looking at how uh, ocean pollution um, was being eaten by um, mammals through the food chain, uh, ocean mammals. and uh, toxins were being sequestered in uh, the fatty tissues of these mammals, um, many of whom were a major source of uh, food for indigenous communities around the Arctic Circle. Um, and the studies were trying to figure out, like, okay, so if this is a main source of food for these indigenous communities and these toxins are sequestered in fatty tissues, um, what does that mean for breast milk uh, of women who are consuming these um, these toxin-laden fatty meats mm-hmm. um, and, and co- public health consequences. And those studies made so, like, it was so, it, it was a moment that clicked for me that conservation, um, the study of the environment, biology was always a passion, but the link to the lives of actual humans, I recognized was something that was really important to me. And that's how I made the shift away from oceanography or biology <laughs> uh, towards global health. Um, I mentioned my family is from, my parents are from East Africa. I was born in Brazil. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was at Pomona, my family lived in Borneo and Portugal. So I had always anticipated um, having a career that took me all over the world. Um, the United States has never been a welcoming place for foreigners. So I never, I always just assumed that my career would um, take me to a lot of different places. So going to school for global health um, seemed like a a good fit for my interests. Um, And in particular, I knew I wanted to work on uh, global health programs that focused on HIV prevention, sexual reproductive health, Mm -hmm. um, and did it in clever ways by um, working on new ways of, of making uh, health behavior attractive or desirable by people instead of shaking your finger in someone's face and say, don't smoke, it's bad for you, and expect it to work. So I was really curious about <laughs> figuring out how to, to be um, more compelling and more of service uh, to people. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, and so, yeah, grad school was great, uh, really hard. But um, what I really liked about my program um, is that there are many different schools of global health, many different schools of any topic or sector. Um, and what I really liked about the program that I ended up going to at UNC Chapel Hill is that the, the program is really f- focused not on topical issues. So not on like, here's everything you need to know about maternal and child health. It was more around the practical skills that you need to apply to whatever interest you want. So how do you design a program? How do you design a work plan and budget for it? Uh, what is the health behavior theory you need to understand to underpin the work that you want to do? How do you Mm -hmm. create a study design? So these are all really practical skills that you can use to apply to whatever interests you. Um, Mm -hmm. And they sort of like assume that you will become, through your work and your interests, you will become a subject matter uh, expert, um, but you really need these these foundational tools. And that was really different from programs that that other friends of mine were doing in global health. And I felt Mm -hmm. grateful for that. Uh, for that kind of training. Um, And I graduated from um, that program and was really incredibly fortunate to actually end up working for a kind of international global health, Mm -hmm. well, actually the international global (laughs) health um, NGO that I had always wanted to work for um, Mm -hmm. when I started thinking about um, global health. But, you know, careful what you wish for, Sierra, because (laughs) my first job at that international NGO really sucked. It was such a disappointment. I thought I was going to go out there and design these amazing programs to prevent people from getting malaria and Mm -hmm. help people get treatment for HIV. And instead, I was stuck in an office under a fluorescent light, which, if you Mm. recall, was not what I wanted in a career. (laughs) Yeah. And I just looked at spreadsheets all day long. And I was like, what? What about global health is related to Excel spreadsheets? I don't understand what's happening right now. Mm -hmm. And most of what I did my first year and a half was um, put together donor reports to explain to donors how we were using their millions of dollars to create programs in Botswana and Swaziland and um, forecasting. So the NGO I worked for um, did a, a huge variety of programs, but also provided goods like products and services around health, including um, condoms that were subsidized and marketed uh, in various different countries. And so mm-hmm. some of these spreadsheets were not about um, creating cool promotional stuff around condoms that make them more attractive to use. Yeah. It was the spreadsheet to forecast, like, when do we need to order more condoms? And, like, how many condoms mm. did we sell last <laughs> month? And, like, is that more or less than how much we sold this time last month last year? And So it was, like, none of the flash work and all of the drudgery. Yeah. And I remember thinking, like, this is not what I signed up for. But let me tell you, this is going to happen to you at some point in your career Uh and fear not it's miserable at the time but in this particular case so I can't promise this for you but what came out of that is I was able to look at a budget from like 50 meters out and be like oh this budget is completely ridiculous like they clearly have not put in realistic anything there. I do not trust whatever this person is showing me in terms of like what Mm -hmm. they're proposing to do. It just gave me this foundational 
um, these foundational skills that I wouldn't have had otherwise that allowed me mm-hmm. to um, be a much better, um, it just, it made me much better at my job in subsequent years to have mm-hmm. had that foundation. It's a little bit like um, the difference between being a mechanic before you become a race car driver. So if you have that foundation of being a mechanic first, you really understand what's happening under the hood. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, you just have a different relationship to driving. That might have been a stretch of a metaphor. But it also, <laughs> it also helped me understand things like, oh, I need to ask questions like, oh, we're promising to distribute X number of mosquito nets in this country. Um, but I can tell from all these donor reports that I've been forced to compile <laughs> that, that during the rainy season, you know, all roads in this part of South Sudan get completely washed out and people have to literally resort to things like boats and helicopters, which should have, you know, that means that you're, it's harder to distribute the number of nets. So if you say you're going to give, distribute the same number of nets in the dry season as you are in the rainy season, you're diluted. So it's, it's that kind of like ingrained background knowledge that you sort of pick up through osmosis and maybe because you are disillusioned about your job, you don't realize yeah. that you're picking it up, but you are. Um, so yeah, I, uh, I, um, I grinned and bore it, probably not with excellent grace, um, for about a year and a half. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in the same organization, uh, a job came up at the newest office. This is an international NGO that had offices in, I think at the time, something like 43 different countries. The newest mm-hmm. office was in Papua New Guinea, and they had just received a grant to do work on HIV prevention with men. Um, so it was about giving men the um, emotional regulation and especially the sexual what I called it, sexual intelligence tools to be able to have a, a healthy sex lives with sex life with their partners that didn't make them more them and their partners more vulnerable to um, sexual violence, violence in general, um, HIV and other sexually transmitted infections. Mm-hmm. And because I had done that volunteer work at the Whitman Walker clinic yeah. with men, I ended up getting a job. So running an HIV prevention program in Papua New Guinea, and that really kick-started my career. Okay. Wow. What a journey. Um, but also, based off of your SagePost 47 profile, it looks like even after that, you still had a lot of different positions. Yeah. So maybe like a, a brief overview of where you have been and what you have done. Sure. So in Papua New Guinea, um, I ran this uh, HIV prevention program um, focused on uh, uh, men who were in isolated villages uh, in Papua New Guinea and men who worked in mines and uh, coffee plantations who were far from their families and therefore um, having uh, many different sexual partners. And it was interesting, Papua New Guinea is a place I knew very little about, and it's a place where I felt like a lot of my Western education was completely irrelevant to how people think about their lives and think about the world. Um, and it was a really, also it's the most, the wildest, most violent and dangerous place I've ever known. Um, and I, it's probably the steepest learning curve I've had in my entire life. Um, I just really, it helped me put into perspective the value of my education and training, 
um, compared to the value of uh, the education, I guess, the learning that I've done as a result of having a diverse and loyal group of friends who mm-hmm. uh, I know I know that they will always have my back, just as I know that they will call me out on things if if needed. Um, mm-hmm. From there, um, the donor that funded this program that I was leading woke up. What? You're Brazilian? Well, we can't have a Brazilian work on this project. Uh, you have to leave. Uh, okay. So that was pretty, um, that was not a fun time. But as a result, um, I got deployed to Haiti um, in the wake of the devastating earthquake of 2010 that flattened uh, the main city, the capital of Port-au-Prince. Um, and I led uh, the health behavior, sort of social marketing and communications team there, working on HIV prevention, malaria prevention, diarrhea prevention, and child survival, and um, contraceptive uptake. That was a really interesting experience because every single nonprofit on the planet descended upon this tiny island nation in the wake of this earthquake. And many hundreds more were formed in response to this earthquake because there was so much money in responding to this humanitarian crisis, money going uh, towards the humanitarian relief. And there are two things that I learned there. One is to be really skeptical of this theater of do-goodery. So a lot of times um, people who don't know me might say like, oh, you work in the humanitarian sector. Oh, that's so brave. You're doing such good work. And it's like, you don't know that. You have no idea if I'm doing good work or not. Uh, For all you know, I could be you know, the source of the toxic workplace uh, in my particular field, or I could be taking advantage of uh, poor brown and black people everywhere, um, as people have done since the beginning of time. And so this sort of uh, umbrella or this costume of working for a humanitarian organization or doing humanitarian work, um, I think is a, it can give cover for some really harmful work. And mm-hmm. there have been many scandals uncovered since that 2010 earthquake that have pointed to exactly that, to privileged uh, white people coming in in positions of power um, in NGOs and taking advantage of the very people that they are supposedly there to serve. Yeah. The other thing I learned is, you know, um, I had a team of colleagues whose job it was to create edutainment so create these really engaging soap operas that happen to interweave messages of like malaria (laughs) prevention or whatever (laughs) so really fun cool team of people who would make these movies and then get into you know our trucks and drive and drive and drive and drive to some remote place on the island and set up a screen and screen it for surrounding villages and i remember this one time um, they were actually going out and delivering mosquito nets to this very remote village. And I didn't hear from them for a while, and I knew they were going to be gone for a while. Um, and when they came back to the office several days later, they came back with these, like, you know, looking a little white around the eyes. And clearly something had happened, but they didn't feel comfortable telling me about it. Um, and what had happened is they had, you know, been on the road forever. They finally got to mm-hmm. their guest house with their truck full of mosquito nets to distribute. And they were accosted by a mob of angry zombies. And uh, they were scared out of their minds while this horde of zombies attacked their truck 
for hours and they were, you know, within spitting distance of their guest house. They just couldn't get there because of this horde of zombies. And I remember um, telling a friend of mine who was not Haitian the story and he was like, I don't know, he was really dismissive about like, you know, the fact that people believe in zombies. And I was like, Everyone in Haiti believes in zombies. Like, it doesn't matter if I personally believe in zombies or not. Like, these, this is a belief that shapes people's behavior. It shapes how they live their family lives. It shapes how they go through the world. And the reality of the situation is that I had a group of colleagues who believed that they were trapped in a truck surrounded by an angry mob of zombies and fearing for their lives. And mm-hmm. despite that harrowing experience, they're still willing to get back into a truck two weeks later and do it all over again. And um, I, I had this, I think that was a very clear moment for me where I was like, okay, I understand about 3% of everything that is happening around me right now, because I am a stranger to this culture, to this place, and my mere presence here um, is a disruption. And I, you know, I've always remembered that lesson, that I understand, not even the tip of the iceberg, like I understand, I don't know, the snowflake on top of the tip of the iceberg. From Haiti, Mm -hmm. um, I went and worked for, um, so this uh, global design firm called IDEO had just started Mm -hmm. their um, nonprofit. They'd spun out a nonprofit called IDEO.org. And they had just Mm -hmm. started up in the San Francisco Bay Area and they had started like a global fellowship program to, um, they like, recruited six people from around the world to partner with some of their designers uh, to work on um, social impact uh, challenges around the world. Um, And that was really interesting for me because coming from the international development sector, I had a very pragmatic, like, here's the reality of our world and everything is urgent and people's lives are on the line. Um, And to join a a team of people who really like felt like the best way to honor um, people and humans and, and to live, uh, you know, to have this human centered design kind of mindset is through creativity and engagement and delight and wonder mm-hmm. uh, was a real challenge for me. It was sort of like a new way of seeing the world, which is not, not to come up with a solution over there and then try to figure out how to um, get people to use it but to really first immerse yourself in understanding the problem through the lens of the people that you're trying to serve and say like, oh, yeah, why would they use this crappy solution I came up with when not using it is so much better? Yeah. Um, That was really interesting. Um, And then from there, um, I did some work in Angola, um, did a lot of research on beer on the side there, Mm -hmm. why certain types of beers were available in certain counties of Angola based on their political relationships uh, during the time of the civil war there. Um, and then the Ebola outbreak broke out in West Africa in 2014, 2015. Um, yeah. Yeah. And no one wanted to, very few people wanted to go rush in. Um, and that created a vacuum. <laughs> and I ended up um, taking a role as the country director for uh, the the NGO that I work for, uh, the international NGO I work for um, in Liberia. Um, And 
you know, it was, it was really hard to work with a group of colleagues whose families were all deeply affected by this nightmare that everyone was leaving, living in and who still showed up to work every day. Um, it, it was hard to understand how to be the kind of leader that, that makes people believe that, you know, someone has their back. Um, especially yeah. since, you know, I work for an international U.S.-based NGO, um, and every time I said things to my headquarters team around, like, you know, keeping people safe or risk assessments if there's, like, a civil war um, and making sure our people are safe, um, everyone first assumed that I was talking about expatriates. I was talking about the foreigners who worked on the team and not all of my Liberian colleagues. And just to give you a sense, there were, we had 134 staff, only mm -hmm. five of whom were foreigners. Um, and mm -hmm. that, to me, was such a stark example of racism and, um, yeah, racism in this international aid and development structure that is so rooted in colonialism and, you know, Western money and expertise you know, going out to make sure everyone else starts thinking and working like we do. Yeah. Um, that was really hard. That was like a, a, a lesson of leadership um, that, that exposed also an ugliness in the way we worked, just as we were trying to do good. Um, that was really hard to confront. It was a time when, um, because a symptom of Ebola is fever, um, hospitals and clinics would not admit anyone who, who had a fever um, and for all of us in Liberia, and I think probably most of the world, one of the riskiest things that is like, or one of the biggest risks that people face is a car accident. And so, you know, we had teams of colleagues on the road all the time at any given moment. And I just kept imagining, you know, what, what would happen if someone got into a terrible car accident and spiked a fever as a result? How... How would we get them help? Um, yeah. And that's what kept me up at night, not Ebola. <laughs> um, yeah, from there, I, I moved around. Uh, I did more jobs of that kind. Um, and I now work for, I, I now work for another U.S.-based international NGO um, mm -hmm. called the International Rescue Committee, um, based out of New York, but working in conflict areas all over the world. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, it's the last, the last couple of years of, of reflecting on what social justice and doing good means and racial equity and power dynamics and what it means to be anti-racist and what it means to be anti-colonialist um, has, has been really confronting. Um, and trying to balance, you know, trying to do good, trying to do service-oriented work um, with trying not to do harm has been hard. Um, and so it's difficult to both try to dismantle the harmful institutional issues that we have in our humanitarian sector, while also recognizing that people are in crisis all the time. And, you know, when someone yeah. has fleeing conflict because of militias and their families are uprooted, their families are at risk, they don't have a livelihood, they don't have a house anymore, they're not going to care if we're hand wringing about, you know, our role in perpetuating racism. Like they just need yeah. help. Um, 
And so it's been hard to do the work of holding white male power to account um, while also recognizing that we need to do it while trying to be of service to others who need it more. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, I think that, I don't know, you have just had so many unique um, and interesting experiences and thank you for sharing your stories. Well, I think we've gone quite over time, but I, I wanted to hear everything. And I think that I usually end off asking if you want to share anything else and usually maybe some advice to students um, or any thoughts that you have. Um, so I've talked a lot already, <laughs> but I want to re- reiterate um, my hope for, for students thinking about life after Pomona, which is to give yourself a break from school, from working hard, um, and give yourself the space and time to reflect on who you are and what you love doing, um, and recognize that you are still growing as a person and that is less likely to come from your education and more likely to come from the people you surround yourself by. Uh, And also that this is the magical time in your life where you can do all the crazy things and you should. You should should look for the thing that is least like where you want to end up in your career and throw yourself into it. Because when you do get back to what you want to do in your career, if that's still the thing, you're going to come to it with such a different perspective than everyone else in that room. And that's what we value in our colleagues is people who are not like you, people who are going to come from a different lived experience, from a different mindset. Uh, And it's, it's fun, (laughs) you know, it's scary, but it's fun. Um, The other thing that I want to say is that a lot of moments in my career that have been really valuable came about as a result of, you know, getting kicked out of a country I was living in because I had the wrong passport or um, having, you know, a really boring job looking at spreadsheets. Um, So just be patient. Like you are going to have moments where you don't like what you're doing, but um, that's okay. Like you, those moments are going to probably end up being more valuable than you think. Yeah, definitely. Um, well, thank you so much, Carla. It's my pleasure, Sierra. I really appreciate you taking the time today, and I've loved having you on, so thank you. Oh, and thank you for inviting me. It's a, it's a real honor, um, and uh, yeah, I'm happy to um, be a cheerleader for any Pomona student out there who um, needs an extra boost to take a big plunge into the great unknown. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I think we'll wrap it up. So thank you everyone for listening and take care.